0: Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival but the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us so welcome to let's talk native with john kane say welcome to let's talk native i am john kane i'm your host and i want to talk about something that is uh yeah, look, I was listening to the NPR the other day and I heard a, uh, a report that suggested, based on polling, that 40% of Americans don't know that Native people still exist. So I'm here to say we are still here. Now, having said that, I don't want to be, you know, sound ridiculous because I know a lot of people know that we exist and you know, apparently 60% do. Um, and if you live near Native people near a native community or if you know somebody who's native then then obviously you are not necessarily in the same group of people who are that oblivious but even if you do even if you do live next to native people even if you have a native friend or live next to a native territory you may still not understand who we are or, or or yes we still exist but in what state do we exist? I mean, in, in what condition do we exist? And so I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm, and this, it, it isn't just going to be about doom and gloom. It's about explaining the spectrum that um, that Native people live as in terms of who we once were versus who we are today. And, and in talking about it, you know, a part of it is out of my concern, and, and I've talked a lot about identity on this show, and, and so this is a little bit of, of that. But after, you know, 500 years of, of genocide, uh, after hundreds of years of, of assimilation, and, and when when I say assimilation, I mean literally ethnic cleansing, you know, this idea that, uh, that we would at one point be, uh, you know, be... Exterminated. I mean, look. When I say we're still here, that wasn't the plan. The plan wasn't that native people would, would always exist. That's not what was in, you know, part of the American plan, the manifest destiny. It wasn't all about incorporating us into the fabric of American society. No, that wasn't that wasn't the plan. the The reality is there was an expectation that if you wiped out enough of us, the rest of us just would just disappear. We'd, you know, we would just fade away. We would die out. And, you know, there are many people who believe that native people have died out. And that's, you know, that not just that 40%, but even among the people who know we exist, they think we exist in the same way that, you know, somebody who, you know, who opens up a pizza shop says that they're Italian, you know, so yeah, they're not really Italian. They have, you know, ancestry, you know, that includes, you know, Italian heritage, but they aren't a citizen of Italy and they, they aren't of the Italian culture. They just maybe have an I at the end of their name, or they've got a couple of family recipes that they down. And, and so that can be said about a whole lot of people who, you know, this, this notion of nationality, well, what, what nationality are you? Well, look, most of the people who answer that question, answer it based on, you know, something their parents told them. And so, so how do we exist? And, and, I, and I have to start by saying f- first that Native people are not a monolith. We never were. We, and we, we were always a very diverse population. Uh, we had certain things we held in common, and, and our connections to the land were among those things. We, you know, we, There are, were hu- literally hundreds, if not thou- over 1,000 languages. Today, the, the federal government claims they, they recognize 575 federally recognized tribes. Well, those numbers are a little fuzzy because you, you, you look at some that have been separated. And I, I think about the, uh, well, Seneca Nation. You know, there's the Seneca Nation, but then there's the Tonawanda Senecas. And then there's the Cayuga Senecas out in in Kansas. Many native territories have been separated by the removal policies. And so rather than looking at um, Mohawk Nation, for instance, I'm Mohawk. Well, the federal government doesn't even recognize Mohawks. They rec- recognize the, the Saint Regis tribe of Mohawks, which is a very small subset of Native people who claim to be Gonnogahaga, who claim to be Mohawk, um, and of course there's border issues and all kinds of other stuff. But so when when I hear the number, I don't know what they're calling a tribe, band, or nation of Indians in terms of. The in, in terms of those who would identify specifically by those designations, and 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 this is you know kind of where we're at. There there have been you know paid professionals, there have been legal counsel and uh, and and lobbyists and and all these others who have described native governance within the context of the system of both U.S. and Canadian federalism. That somehow we are a division of of their system of governance. So there's a federal government, the state government or provincial government. There's counties, there's townships. And somewhere in the mix, there's, there are those that believe that we have been municipalized, I guess, or, or fit within the division of, you know, of that system of federalism, you know, we're, we're, our governments are a part of their system. And that's not necessarily true. On, on the Canadian side, a lot of the band councils—they certainly qualify for that kind of description. But again, there's the band councils, but then there's the people that the band councils claim to represent. You know, and I've cited this oftentimes. I've talked about how in Six Nations, you know, I think it was only like five percent of the population votes in those band council elections. Well, it's a little hard to suggest that somebody who's elected in a in a in a band council election. On the Canadian side where there's only 5% participation that you can, you can even really claim that those governments are legitimate. But most of that legitimacy comes from the relationship with Canada, but that's them as an administration, as a, as an entity, almost like a, like a corporate entity. It's not necessarily all the people. So when somebody asks about being native, it's a complicated answer. It's a complicated, complicated question. And as I've looked at, you know, as I've traveled, as I've gone from territory to territory, and I've and I've interacted with people, some that are quote unquote not federally recognized, some that are state recognized or not state recognized, some people who who have lived in the same lands since time immemorial, and and yet they are not distinguished by the United States as a, you know, again, as a as a recognized tribe or whatever else. And I don't have a problem with not being recognized. I mean, in fact, I would. I'm not uh, an enrolled member of the Saint Regis Mohawk Tribe, but it doesn't stop me from being Mohawk or Gunyagahaga. So, again, a lot of these designations, um, we get caught into the, uh, you know, into the, the confusion over this stuff. So when I say yes, we are still here, but then the next question is, but but what are we? Well, that what are we can be, be complicated because like I said, there are lots of people who have fully accepted and embraced American citizenship or Canadian citizenship that are, that are native people. Now that's a certain, there's a certain conflict in saying that, I mean, and because how do you define being native? Well, is it, is it just blood quantum? Is it, you know, is it ancestry or is it the life that you live today? because that's that's where some of this stuff gets gets confusing and because there has been such an effort not only to eliminate us from from the beginning but then eliminate us through you know attrition or you know or through a, through assimilation hoping that we would all marry out or you know either you know get absorbed into into some of that melting pot of american society or or canadian society so whether we you know there's the whole race mixing thing of native people intermarrying with with other peoples of color or or white people and so does it water us down to the point that we cease to exist as a distinct people well look there's always going to be native people who resist assimilation and who are going to uh, try to maintain not only their their sovereignty their 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 authority over their being but um, maintain a certain level of, of, of cultural integrity. Look, it's not to say that we that we're that we're like Amish and so we're gonna live in, in a frozen state of, of cultural development, so to speak. No, it's not that. It's about bringing all of that stuff forward. Even as we speak English, you know, we, we hope to maintain our languages and, and we're doing a fairly decent job doing that. I mean, compared to the the amount of language loss that we saw, you know, say, you know, say thirty or forty years ago, so there is a a lot of there, there's a lot of effort being put in by some to maintain native distinction. Now almost nobody wants it to totally go away as far as native people. So whether you're a band counselor or you you know you work for you know a a, a tribal council that's that's a federally recognized tribe or whatever else. You almost can't let it completely go away because then, then the whole idea of being a, a band or a tribe or a nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States um, that doesn't. You don't even carry that distinction. So, if if we look at the Native population, it's a little hard to put numbers to it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't even attempt to do so. But you're gonna you're gonna acknowledge that there's that there are plenty of Native people who have fully embraced an American life. And on the, on the other side of that imaginary line, a Canadian life. And look, many indigenous people uh, who, uh, who, who got caught up in the colonization of Spain, you know, by Spain. So they, you know, they've adopted a lot of uh, Spanish culture, but not just the language, but, you know, the religion. And, you know, and, and there's oftentimes a little bit of a, of a melding of, uh, of cultures that come from the, the colonial states and And yet, some of what we we hang on to. And that's where most of us are. And almost nobody can say that they're that they've that they're living the exact life of a, of a people who would have never had contact. You know th- that probably doesn't exist. Now, and I'm not saying that's a requirement. and, and I'm not even saying that that's necessarily necessary or um, that's in the best interest of preserving who we are because look, we live in a world, where the actions, uh, you know, all of our actions affect each other, r- regardless. We, we can't claim to be, you know, in tune with the environment if we're going to ignore the fact that our environment includes an awful lot of white people <laughs> and, and, and non-white people. So our environment has changed. And a lot of that change is, is due to population growth. And, and and again, being inundated with with people who have who basically, you know you know, taken over, so to speak. Now, I think it's really important that we encourage those people in, in our communities, in, you know, across from territory to territory, who do really attempt to maintain a high level of, uh, of, of cultural integrity and, and cultural distinction, language, storytelling, understanding the, the history, the oral history. I think all of those things are really important, and, and I think even if if you are one of these people who wants to enlist in the armed forces and you know, they want to vote in American elections and they want to you know incorporate all of these you know these colonial systems into into their being as as a native person even if you're that person you should still be glad there's somebody maintaining a, a little bit more of you know certainly more of that integrity uh, of that cultural consistency because That's what we're all going to rely on. At some point, we're always the the more we get sucked into this, you know, assimilation whirlpool. The less resources we're going to have around us to 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 draw to. And look, I look at what what my generation, the generation that that I'm a part of. You know, and I'm sixty, you know, sixty one years old now. I look at how much my generation and the people who were just slightly older than me, how much they retrieved from what was lost or or what appeared to be lost, and and so let me explain. You can look at pictures of our people in the fifties and the sixties who. Look like the, we're, we're dressed as Plains Indian, uh, Plains Indians, you know, we've we're got long headdresses on and we're, we're participating in some level of some sort of cultural activity, social activity, maybe ceremony. But we had already gotten affected by the the Hollywood image and, and, and what people perceived as what a native person was. And we bought into that. It's it's been since then that we understand what a Gostoa is. What well, we understand the the three feathers, you know, mean and signify what you know what certain parts of our culture have come to mean. We have a better understanding because we've had the people who understand the language, who didn't let it fade away. Not just as table talk, talking about passing the salt or the milk or something, like that, but but understanding where the words come from, and and so there's been an education. Look, the, the sovereignty movement, for lack of a better word, the the the, the movement that includes. AIM includes, you know, the warrior societies, you know, coming back into existence. Those who are fighting for our distinction on our territories, fighting for our regulatory advantages, our, our right to uh, uh, to develop economies and that kind of stuff. We had to learn much to, to advance that stuff. It wasn't enough. We couldn't just do what we wanted and not think that we weren't going to be challenged from the outside. So to meet that challenge, we had to educate ourselves. So we had to educate ourselves about U.S. law, Canadian law, and where those limits to those laws are. I, I remember you know, one, of the, uh, one of the organizations here in the Seneca territory um, invited a lawyer in, a lawyer that they thought was very knowledgeable about you know, fighting for our rights and that kind of stuff. And, and they talked to the lawyer about his knowledge of Indian law. And he said, let me, let me clarify here. I'm not an expert in in native law. He says my job is to find out where U.S. and state law have been um, abused and and that they've been stretched beyond the, their legal limits. So when when I get involved with 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 fighting or defending a, a native person, what I'm fighting against is is the U.S. or the state laws, the federal or the state laws that are being applied wrongly. So. He says but if you want to know about native law and he pointed to back and he says, talk to that guy. I've learned more about Indian law, native law from him and he, was, and, and he was pointing to me. So it's a little self-serving story but but he was pointing to me. But but what he was explaining is that you know you should know your laws and your culture and 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 you know where authorities lie and where they don't lie. You should know that. Don't look to a white man with, with a briefcase to tell you that. He goes, what I'm gonna tell what I'm gonna do is defend you because the laws are being inappropriately applied to you. And or or, or they don't apply to you at all. So this is the stuff that we've had to learn. And and look, we, we sometimes have had to educate the lawyers. And that's what, you know, that's what this this lawyer was was expressing. That that if he didn't have some native resources to, to raise the challenges, he would have known how to defend it. So it's on us to know a little bit about what we're facing and, and also what, what our defense look. I, I once used said the, uh, the phrase, you know, sovereignty isn't our defense. It's what we defend. So it's not enough to say, well, we're native that your laws don't apply. No, we've got to, we've got to fight for that distinction. Now we're not all fighting the same battle. And that's why I say, when I, when I ask that question, what are we? Well, because even these band councils and these tribal councils, they get in a, in a tough situation because, you know, there are certain laws that the U.S. passes and we utilize those laws to, you know, to perhaps further our economic growth or, or whatever else, you know, and, and I'll give an example up in Aquasasni, the, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe uh, built a casino and they built a casino because, when they passed the Indian gaming regulatory act a federally recognized tribe could uh, could open up a casino if they entered into a gaming compact with the state and you know and and and, and all of this right so that's the the direction that the St Regis Mohawk tribe had gone into but at some point there was a challenge about osha laws so when we open up something when we open up a business on our territories and we're doing it under some Federal, you know, state or federal law that that we that even if it's a law like like Igra that was carved out specifically for us or to us or whatever however you're going to call it, when we operate under those, the authority of that law, what we're doing is we're operating under the authority of of the federal government. So this this challenge that that occurred in in um over. Whether OSHA's laws could be used, you know these, you know these the occupational, these hazard laws essentially, um, could be enforced at in a casino. The Saint Regis Mohawk Tribe, their lawyers, you know, tried to use um, some of the, the the treaties for defense, he, the Canandaigua Treaty, you know. So he he tried to use some uh, some some treaties. And it was a strange slap in the face that came back to uh, to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe. They said, you're not a party to those treaties. So what they were told is that you have used the Seven Nations Treaties and some of these other treaties that are not necessarily the Six Nations. And you are not representing yourself as the Mohawk Nation, but as a creation of some other set of relationships. We don't have. You've never provided us with any evidence that you, as the Saint Regis Mohawk Tribe, are a legitimate party, or even really, really legitimate heirs to the party that entered into into the Treaty of Canandaigua. That was a quite a slap in the face, and you know, and it said something. It said something to to those of us who who were worry about band councils, tribal councils, elected councils, claiming so much of our culture, on one hand. But also claiming all of this, the the perks that come with being, you know, being a federally recognized tribe using federal laws, you you know, participating in in, in all of their their regulatory systems. I mean, even today, as I as I as I talk about some of this stuff being complicated, look, we we have casinos in some of our territories um, because we have the right to have casinos, but we don't we, we we operate them. Um, under a federal law and so we have these casinos, but we also have some other businesses that we operate we operate these uh, uh, reta- uh, Tobacco retail and we argue that the state doesn't have the authority to regulate our sale of uh, sale of tobacco and We t- we take that argument and then in our stores it, even in the casinos we sell c- Cigarettes without New York State ta- tax on it. However, when we sell booze in those at those casino bars, we have a New York state liquor license. You look, I'm sorry to say it, but that's, that's, you know, thin ice there and it's a slippery slope. So if we're going to make the argument that the state law doesn't regulate our tobacco sales, but they do regulate our alcohol sales and we concede to that. See, this is where this gets very, very um, complicated. So even as somebody asks me the question, look, there are a lot of non-native people who uh, who, who who believe that we are sovereign nations and that were, it's kind of like nation within a nation kind of thing. Well, the problem with that, and I've and I've talked about this on a couple of shows recently, we don't have the same understanding that the federal government or the state governments have, and, and in fact while there's some places that the states will acknowledge they don't have certain authorities, they will never say that there is a place where their jurisdiction or the sovereignty of the state stops and ours, and, and ours you know, begins. There's no, never that line in the sand. I mean, we've caused, we've drawn lines in the sand and said, no, you're not coming on. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. We've done that. And we've done it over tobacco. We've done it over, over, you know, other, other issues. But we can't say that the state or the federal government recognizes our sovereignty if they don't recognize that there's a limit to theirs. And so this is where it, where it gets really complicated. There are people at the grassroots level who are always willing to say, hell no. But tribal counselors, you know, people in elected office, they oftentimes try to walk a line that, that, that suggests, yes, we can be both. In, in, in fact, you know, I've talked about it before, this, this myth of dual citizenship. And that one goes, cuts a, d- a couple of different ways. Not only do we have this, this, you know, some people who promote this belief that I can be a citizen of, a, of, a, uh, you know, of the Seneca Nation and be a citizen of the United, United States at the same time. Well, no, it doesn't really work that way. Especially if the United States doesn't recognize you as a citizen of the Seneca Nation, but they merely recognize you as a member or, uh, an enrolled member of a tribe. And then I've heard other people try to say, "Well, the dual citizenship thing comes into play with U.S. and Canada, that we as native people, we uh, we enjoy the rights of dual citizenship of Canada and the United States." Well, that's not true either. Now, look, I'm not saying you can't be a dual citizen. I mean, there, there are people who can carry a passport from you know a, you know a country of origin or a country they've patriated to, and that kind of stuff. And and you know, I don't know how many countries say, well, you, we won't allow you to be a citizen, a, a dual citizen of, of two countries. I, you know, Maybe they all are okay with that. But none of those countries, none of the, the international community, including under some of the language of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, none go so far as to say, we will recognize you as a citizen of, of a native nation state. And in fact, you know, the, the UN drip avoids that conversation. In fact... They they suggest that you know in in the, the the declaration that they are not promoting statehood in terms of nation statehood. They they're merely addressing what is the the minimum standard for survival and dignity of native people within countries that that have basically basically taken over uh, these these colonial the colonial existence. So. It's, it's a complicated question. Yes, I will and I will maintain that yes, we are still here. We aren't still here in the same in the same manner that we were here 200 years ago, 500 years ago, before, before white men showed up. And, not, and that's not just about language or clothing. It's about how much we have been impacted by a dominant culture, Coming in and really, really impacting our lives, you know, uh, and directing our lives. I mean, we've lived under the gun, literally. We have, we've had our children taken away. We have, uh, there, we've had our our young w- women sterilized, you know, by by white doctors. I mean, we, we've everything, you know, every definition that they have, or every one of the criteria they have for genocide. Our people have, uh, you know, have experienced that from. From murder to sterilization to taking our children to to creating the conditions that would would make us cease to exist, all of those things qualify as genocide, and that has been and and continues to be because we're still in this. We're still in this effort to assimilate us, and and you know I'm going to take a break here and, and come back in a, in a few minutes. When I come back, I want to talk about. What is, what is still the pressure to, to assimilate us? And the, the battles that we have over how we are perceived by, you know, by governing authorities, by agencies, by elected officials, and frankly, by, you know, law enforcement, all of that stuff. It is, we're still mired in this battle to assert our distinction. So we'll take a break and we'll come right back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, thanks for coming back. Hey, I want to mention, this is our our 500th episode. And look, we've had some more shows than that. But since we, you know, uh, opened up our own studio and we began to log these these shows numerically, this is essentially show number 500. Um, uh, So it's it's a bit of a milestone for us. And and of course, we started out as a a, uh, a once-a-week, two-hour show. Then we changed it to a... Twice a week, one hour show. And I'm going to say, uh, starting uh, for, with 501, our 501st episode, we're going to change the format again. We're going to go to doing three half-hour uh, podcasts. And we're going to try that for a while. We'll see how that works out. I you know, this it, It'll be three programs uh, per week um, that you will get sent in your RSS feed as a, as a podcast. And, of course, we'll put it up as videos. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a shorter it, there'll be shorter shows, uh, more more concise to the to the topic that we're talking about, uh, and we'll, we, we still plan to have guests and that kind of stuff. So nothing's going to change, other than we aren't going to drag it out for, for for a full hour. And we'll see how that works for a while, and uh, um, and if you know, we'll see what it does with our listenership and that kind of stuff. I want to remind people this is a podcast. Yes, we we shoot video and we put the video up on our YouTube channel, um, but I also do a radio show. And I do a show that we call Resistance Radio. It's on WBAI in New York City, on WPFW in, uh, in Washington. But we also take that and we put it up as a podcast. Um, I've mentioned this before, but Resistance Radio isn't listed with our Let's Talk podcast. So you have to search for Resistance Radio with, uh, with John and Regan uh, as a podcast and subscribe to that. I encourage you to do it. We do some good shows. I can't say enough about Regan uh, DeLoggins, who is my co-host. I hope to have her join us on a couple of these programs as well. But uh, by all means, check out resistance radio with Regan and John or John and Regan. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. That way you don't have to look for us. We'll come to you. If you subscribe to our podcast, it'll just get delivered to your phone or your, you know, your tablet or whatever. And uh, you know, we, it'll, it we'll deliver to you. You don't have to come looking for us. So I just wanted to mention that. And, uh, and the fact that we're going to change up the format a little bit, um, you know, starting with our, with our next episode. Uh, all right, let me get back to it here. You know, one of the things that that, that has changed in this, uh, w- with all of this assimilation, is how dependent we are on not just American democracy. I'm not getting away from the politics of it all, which which we do get you know sucked into that. But but certainly the system, the capitalist system, the, the how the the economy and commerce works in the United States. We are much more integrated. Into that system, even as we've developed economically, you know, casinos and smoke shops and gas stations and that kind of stuff, whatever other products and services we sell, we have immersed ourselves more completely into the U.S. Uh, the U.S. marketplace. Now, we also have had had a tradition of being farmers um, and you know hunters, gatherers. You, you hear that all the time uh, historically, and we still have some of that skill set. But, but even as, even as we tried to grow our farms, I mean, coming out of, you know, you know, over a hundred years ago, we started meeting some of the complications about bringing our products to market. And, you know, many of the farms, you know, uh, many many farms uh, um, were were challenged. They were challenged by, you know, FDA regulations, um, USDA, you know, uh, regulations. you know, agricultural regulations, you know, whether, whether, whether we were selling milk, you know, or, you know, uh, or products or, or whatever. So, um, so our existence has become a lot more, like I said, involved and en and enmeshed with, uh, with the U S, um, free market system. Right. I mean, in, during the great depression, many native people didn't feel the same impacts from the economic collapse because we were not that engaged in the U S economy. We were, we we grew much of our own food. We, we maintained a lot of our own uh, needs. We, we had more community interaction about, you know, not just bartering, but just the idea of uh, our commerce looked different, put it that way. And, And I'm not criticizing the fact that we have grown out our economies, but but it's it is a fact that we have now become, you know, somewhat, you know, slaved to the the market system. And, you know, a lot of the things that we we do, we do because we have a regulatory advantage and whether it's a tax advantage or. You know, the, or the fact that because we our lands aren't taxed, that we can perhaps produce certain things, you know, at a at a cheaper rate. So, so the outside systems have really impacted how we live today. I will say that uh, that we live a more affluent lifestyle. So, but but that gets measured in dollars and cents. Today, we are probably, you know, not by many measures as impoverished as we were in, in, uh, in previous years. But having said that, that's not to say that our quality of life life has improved, you know, because if you're only measuring poverty in dollars and cents, which is how you kind of measure it. Um, because even, even when you talk about the cost of living, it's, it's measured in dollars and cents. I would dare say that we lived even as, as white people surrounded us and, uh, and, and, and came to dominate our, our environment, so to speak. We still lived a quality of life that was both, both you know, culturally appropriate, um, and maintained, you know, a, a fairly high quality. As we got more dependent on the dollars that we brought into our territories, and not just in the in the economies that we chose, but but even the funding that was provided by the state or federal government on various things, these things put us in a in a situation where we were become dependent on that. Now, the problem is the United States is in a state of decline, and, and there's no denying it. I mean, and this isn't because of four years of Trump or any, any of that other stuff. Look, the United States has been in a state of decline for a very long time. And, and part of it is the falseness of the, the economy and, and, and how it's, it, it was for, for many years, the, they could just raise more money by appropriating more lands from Native people. It was one of the it was one of these ways that you could get a free boost to your economy. You just expand your land holdings. And and, and so this this idea that that this this false um, propping up of, of the US economy, it was gonna it, it was gonna bust at some point. You know, and and we're seeing that. We're seeing consumption at a level that is unsustainable. Right now, the stock market is at a, of the United States is at all times high, but but everybody knows that it's inflated and it's gonna and the bubble's gonna bust. They just don't know when. It, and in fact, the you know, one of the things that's come out in the news recently is is how detached the value of a of a stock of a company is to the performance of a company. You know, GameStop comes to mind. You know, there, there's all these. It, it's become more and more clear that that much of the stock market is a, is a bit of a Ponzi scheme. So when the, when the stock market crashes again, and it, and it will, and they'll have all these kind of, you know, mechanisms to try to stop it from crashing terribly. But as that comes to re comes down to reality, we're also faced with the idea that the, that the United States economy is not doing that well. And, and, and it's not just because of COVID-19 there has been, you know, the, the, the gap between the wealthy and the poor has grown dramatically. And, and, and even as, you know, guys like Donald Trump or, 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 Obama or anybody else look coming out of the, what was considered the crash or the, the, the recession of 2008, all this boasting about how great the economy was doing during, you know, during the Obama administration. Well, look, a lot of people lost their homes and, and, and then, and what that means is that somebody made money off of those homes. So the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. That's unsustainable especially since the rich rely on the poor to buy their stuff and 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 that money doesn't doesn't come out of thin air oh sure it's it's handed down family to family generationally but in order to keep that money flowing they rely on the rest of us so the united states is 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 really showing where it's going we see not only the economy doing poorly you know unemployment and you know I know they say the level comes down, but it's because of the way they measure unemployment. The you know the income gap is is as ever widening. Fewer and fewer people hold a larger and larger stake of the of the the, the American wealth. You know, uh, so so this is a problem. We see you know uh, degradation in uh, in in the social climate and in, in how people get along. We see you know obviously factionalism uh, politically. There's, there's global conflicts, there, there are political conflicts, there's social unrest, and, of course, there's the, um, the, the climate problem. So there's a lot of things. And, of course, throw, throw into the mix you know a, a global pandemic that, frankly, the United States is a long ways from, getting, uh, from containing it. In fact, by, by most measures, the United States has been a dismal failure in its handling of, of COVID-19. And this isn't necessarily a once-in-a-lifetime event. There have been, you know, uh, diseases. There have been infections. There have been pandemics in the past. And as some of this other stuff unravels, including climate change, this may be more and more reoccurring. And and that's not even talking about the the existing pandemic, you know, just mutating to to, to different versions of, of itself. So look, that sounds pretty doom and gloom. <laughs> I said it was not going to be about doom and gloom. that that does, does sound pretty gloomy. but I guess the question has to be is where does this leave us as as the United States continues to experience its state of decline and its and unraveling of everything from its you know government to its economy to its uh, uh, again to to the the social unrest, where does it leave us? Well, Look, we should be able to peel back and, and become, uh, create more insulation or isolation from some of the unrest that's happening everywhere else. The question is, do we have the will to do it? So when I, when I, when I ask that question, yeah, but what are we, but what are we? I got to ask, what do, where do we see ourselves? You know, with the United States being in a state of decline, we can be just like the, uh, the proverbial, you know, um. Frog in a boiler in a boil pot of, bo- of water. You know we don't jump out because the water gets hot gradually, and by the time we realize you know, that we're you know, we're essentially being boiled to death, um, it's too late. So, not just native people, but but many people are recognizing you know the the problems that exist in the United States. Part of the the anarchist movement is not necessarily to. You know, I, I don't think anybody realistically thinks that the United States can exist under under a complete state of anarchy, but communities can. And and by anarchy, I I don't mean chaos, and I know that's how some people try to define it. But anarchy is about eliminating hierarchy. Lo and behold, that sounds fa- familiar from a Native standpoint because we had eliminated hierarchy in in under the Guyana or Goa. So if we began to say look we're going to treat our communities and and certainly non-native people can do the same things you you isolate yourself from, from the party politics from from all that. look there's a there's a small city out near albany called troy troy new york and I, I i know troy i've been there um they prided themselves and i don't i haven't really experienced it but they've prided themselves in almost removing the 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 uh, bipartisan you know and, and the party bickering they exist as a community first, before you know. And I don't know if they run for office, you know, without parties or running. But but I I was listening to a program and they're, and they're talking about that. Now the other thing I've heard about is these things called transition towns, which are usually led through grassroots movements. This idea of trying to create um, communities that exist without the um, staying away from peak oil. Um, trying to do more bartering, staying away from being, a, you know, a slave to the, to the capitalist system of the United States. Now this can happen at the smaller levels. Now it never can happen completely because we're, you know, we're at a place in our lives or in our development, I guess, as human beings that we, we probably can't provide all of the infrastructure, you know, from a, from a transition town standpoint or from a, from an anarchy standpoint, there are some things that, you know, that we're going to rely on on the existing marketplace for, but we can diminish it. We can, we can, we can ratchet it down somewhat. And we as native people, we're in the best place because we actually have defined borders, right? We have territories that we can, that we can say the line is here, that you're no longer in the County or in the state, or, you know, I would argue in the United States. So if we, and this isn't just about a, a, a resurgence of native culture, but, but it's a part of it, but part of it is also realizing that our dependency on casino revenue or on, on, on a retail e- economy, that may be something that we've got to you know, move in a different direction. Look, I, I'm encouraged by some of the, the, the food sovereignty movements that exist, but we've got to go be, beyond just, just growing corn. And, and, and many territories have, including this one. But the whole idea of trying to uh, to live with, with a, a bigger emphasis on community. And, and I, by community, I don't just mean neighborhood or village. Because the world that we live in, we can connect with each other even miles and miles apart. So we can have communities that exist, not just virtually, but we can have relationships that are community-like that stretch across from territory to territory, from you know, from region to region. This is the kind of stuff that, and I've talked about some of this in, on, on previous programs, but I recognize that we are not the people we used to be. And while there's many of us that are trying to hang on to much of that characteristic of, of who we once were, we are met with tremendous obstacles that are always trying to assimilate us. And some of that assimilation comes in, 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 well, I've talked about gaming here. I mean, the, the state's pulling uh, pulled a billion and a half dollars out of Seneca gaming. And so, yeah, we're going to work with you to, to uh, you know, in, in terms of authorizing your right to do gaming, whether we need it or not, but we're also going to create a condition where, where we're going to get paid. Well, that whole relationship is very much, you know, assimilation the way the way that our kids are educated, we haven't taken enough of that responsibility on ourselves. So our kids are immediately inundated with pledging allegiance to the flag, you know, singing national anthems and, and, and patriotic hymns like, uh, you know, God bless America and America, the beautiful, and this land is your land and all that stuff. Right. We don't, we have to overcome some of that stuff with our kids and we have to, maintain i'm not saying saying that we've got to maintain a, an an identity that exactly parallels who we were 100 200 years ago but we have to maintain some of that level of distinction and i'm not saying because if we don't we're going to be we're going to be overrun it's when i said i'm not going to be if you go doom and gloom i've heard lots of people say look if you don't have your language you you run the risk of risk of losing your land I don't know. There's a direct line between those two things. I think if, if you cease to exist as the people you once were, it is going to be harder and harder to, to distinguish where your community, you know, where their community ends and your community begins. You know, I, I've, I've heard many people say you know, everything is a, is a pathway to them taxing our lands. That's not my concern. You know what I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about us taxing our lands. Us being so much, so drawn to the systems out there that we bring those systems in because we're already doing it. We've seen it with, with tribal police. We've seen it with tribal courts. We've seen it with, uh, sometimes when we, when we have done um, schooling, even even Head Start and daycare, we adopt everything outside there and bring it in. Child protective services. you know, So all of these, even, even some of the regulatory stuff, the licensing that we do, you know, how we, we you know, we um, here in the in Seneca territory, there's a, there's a, a stamp they put on cigarettes. Why? That's what they do out there. They, some, in somebody's infinite wisdom, they thought if the Seneca nations stamped the, their cigarettes that somehow it validated their, their con- conducting a commerce that doesn't pay to the state. You know what the state's view is the, the state still has the opinion that they have the right to collect taxes on the sales that we conduct on our territories as if they're sales to, to Americans. I mean, they don't enforce it. It's it's virtually impossible to enforce it, but it's important that we understand what their view is. And even if we, we seem to be getting away with something doesn't mean that it can't come crashing to an end. At some point We, we look every seven or seven to 10 years, we end up in a major conflict with the state over things like taxation. And the less distinction I, I don't want to be in that situation that, that the, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe was in, where they tried to defend themselves using, you know, some sort of you know, whether it's a treaty or who we once were, that we don't seem to be much of that anymore. I don't want a white man in a black robe telling me, Well, you're not who you used to be. So we don't have to recognize this or recognize that. They don't recognize it anyway, but when that becomes their argument, look, there was a a period of time in the, in uh, in the relationship between the United States and, and native people that was called the termination era. That's when the federal government says, we no longer have to maintain a, a trust relationship with you because you have now been assimilated. You have no, you are no longer distinct. And, and, and this termination era was, was a means again, it, it was forced assimilation. I mean, even some of the laws, like like the U.S. the Indian Citizenship Act that I talked about, this was, you know, uh, again by, by any historical account, a a war crime. The idea of diminishing our or or, t- or trying to strip away our national or cultural character and imposing the U.S. character upon us. But you see, we don't have that conversation many people will will actually cite 1924 as the date that we were allowed to be us citizens i mean here's the reality They're, the united states can't deprive us of any of the constitutional rights that they provide their own people because we we predate their existence they can't ignore the fact that we that we're here and say that even if i maintain as i do that i'm not a us citizen it doesn't mean that they can somehow treat me less legally they do treat native people and other people of color less, but they don't do it based on, on having the legal right to do it. They do it because racism is embedded in the systems. So they don't have to, they don't have to acknowledge it. They can just do it without ever, ever having to acknowledge that we, um, that we are the victims of systemic racism. See, therein lies part, part of the problem. So, Again, I think it's, it's important that we realize that, no, we're, we're not necessarily going to, the bottom isn't going to drop out and one day the United States isn't going to come in and say, oh, you cease to exist. But the problem is, the more that we incorporate their systems on our territory, I mean, it's, it's like the, the final pages of Animal Farm. You know, the, the George Orwell book. You look and all of a sudden you look at the pigs and you look at the man and you can't tell the difference between the two. Well, in this situation, we're the pigs and they're the man. <laughs> Or we could reverse it, I guess. But at some point, if we're not careful, we are not going to be able to dis- distinguish ourselves from that. And we already see it. I mean, we see it with, with our people running for offices and our people enlisting in in their military, be- becoming their police officers, becoming their politicians. And then they become the systems of oppression that we face. And look, I, I've seen even in native governance, you know, tribal government, and, and I use the word because I'm not a fan of it. I'm using it to be derogatory where native people have used sitting on a native council, sitting on a, on a, on a board within, within a, one of our territories as a stepping stone to running for state office. And then that's a stepping stone being uh, um, their, their ability or their popularity growing to where they can run for national office. I've seen our people use our systems to elevate themselves in their systems. Seen it all the time. Not and, the, and I'm not just talking about increasing their their economic worth. But this is this is where we're, this is the challenges that we have. So, yeah, I I think in another 100 years we'll still say we're still here. But it's it, it's going to be increasingly difficult to understand who we are when we say that. And, and I don't think it's impossible to say it now. But as we look at the world around us, and we look at you know some of what what is deteriorating in terms of climate and politics and all that stuff we better be be more aware of where we sit, where we stand in in that dynamic and i'm not saying this to be, you know to be you know th- to sound like armageddon's coming but this isn't just about protecting ourselves from you know you know from disaster it's about planning for our future for our own prosperity and and perhaps right along the way we we create models that other people will follow. They've used our models before. They didn't just use our land. They 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 did incorporate some of our systems as they carved out their their American dream. The question is is is, is always going to be, what do we see our vision of our future for uh, as I'm, I should say, and one of the things that I I've got to say that. I become more and more concerned when I see some of the euphoria over Joe Biden getting elected or you know or Deb Haaland being the interior secretary or the, you know even the you know I talked recently about uh, the the fed wrecking of Hawaii. I see a lot more pushback from native people saying, "Yo, that's not so bad. Yeah, she's going to be good for us." Or what would be wrong with being recognized fe- getting federally recognized. When I talked about it 10 years ago, I had a lot more people who who agreed with me today. I I'm, I'm meeting more resistance today than I, than I, than I met 10 years ago with some of the same conversations. Now I'm not saying that I've lost everybody, but I'm saying people are becoming more vocally supportive of those systems of colonization, those systems of assimilation. So it wears down on you, you know, and you know, and this is kind of where, where we're at. So I think we do have to ask the question, what is it that we, want to be who as we maintain our distinction, how much distinction will we maintain as we maintain our autonomy? Is it just going to be autonomy, but still exactly like what's out there? Because that's not really who we were. The question is, who will we be? That's the question I want to ask. I want to thank you for listening most of this is just food for thought. So let's think about it. I look forward to your comments and we'll, uh, we'll do some follow up on it. So I want to thank you for listening. Uh, look forward to, uh, to a three shorter podcasts, uh, you know, starting next week and uh, we'll see how that goes. This is John Kane. This is let's talk native. Yahweh.